The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the In Defense of Ska podcast. There's a lot of like, okay, well, you like Ska name three bands that aren't the Boss Tones. I'm your host, Aaron Carnes, music journalist and author of the book In Defense of Ska. And I'm your co-host, Adam Davis, veteran Ska musician from the bands Omnigon and Link 8. On our show, we aim to push back on the mainstream's negative perception of Ska music. There are so many great untold stories throughout the history of Ska. The show features interviews with everyone from the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones to Fishbone, Fall Out Boy singer Patrick Stump, and the police drummer Stuart Copeland. Join us on In Defense of Ska from the Consequence Podcast Network. I'm Lior Phillips, host of This Must Be The Gig. We're a weekly podcast that documents everything about the world of live music. Speaking with choreographers, costume and set designers, the people who run beloved venues and festivals, and, of course, speaking with musicians about that one gig that changed their lives. Get your peek behind the curtain at consequenceofsound.net, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. It is a cold and rainy day, and I am on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, making my way to Columbia University. Jesus. What on earth am I doing so far from the cozy confines of my Brooklyn apartment recording studio podcast headquarters on this very cold, wet winter day, almost getting hit by a Manhattan trash truck, you ask? Well, dear listeners, I'm out there in that miserable weather, dodging that traffic, rubbing elbows with other Westsiders, armed with my portable field recorder to prove a point to you. This is, of course, the Opus, brought to you by Consequence Sound, Sony Legacy Recordings. I'm your host, Andy Bothwell, and this is Season 7. In this season, we're going to be covering one of the most important collection of songs in the American pop music canon. An album that is so flawless and elegant, and at this point, so ubiquitous, I think it can be a little underappreciated, maybe even a little underrated. I'm talking about Simon and Garfunkel's 1970 pop folk masterpiece. Their greatest album. And their final album together. And their opus. Bridge Over Troubled Water. Now, when anyone thinks about this album, the first thing that's going to pop into their heads is the title track. Of course. Bridge Over Troubled Water itself. At this point, it's so ingrained in our culture... Not just American culture, but world culture. That it's become something uh, greater than itself. It's not just a brilliant pop song anymore. For us, it's a a hymn. Not a religious hymn. A secular, humanist hymn. And rest assured, 
we're going to talk about this song and its power and its meaning this season. But that's not where we're going to start. And that's not why I was soaked to the bone on the campus of Columbia University a few weeks back. I was there, lost in the Ivy League, with my digital recorder running in the rain like a total maniac. Because I was following in the footsteps of Simon and Garfunkel themselves and looking for a chapel. Because 50 years before me, Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel, along with the co-producer Roy Halley, were also drawn to the campus of Columbia University because of a chapel. They too were dragging a field recording setup around with them, but since it was the late 60s, technology it took to record out in the field couldn't exactly fit in the palm of your hand, you know. Certainly couldn't run on lithium-ion batteries and be carried around in the rain like a maniac like me. It also required an entire crew of technicians and engineers to run it all. But what brought them, and me, to beautiful St. Paul's Chapel on the campus of Columbia University was quite simple. Reverb. The sound of a room. Well, technically, the sound of the sound bouncing off all the spaces and surfaces of a room. In a city full of grand cathedrals, synagogues, and churches, they chose this specific chapel on the campus of Columbia University because of the sound of the room. The natural reverb created by the grand Byzantine domes. It was perfect. The perfect place to record the second most iconic song on the Bridge Over Trouble Water album, The Boxer. Okay. I think it's uh, right here. Or here. (laughs) Did you hear that? That's the sound of me looking at my phone, seeing an image from the original recording session, and checking my position to make sure I'm in the exact right place. And you can hear the difference a few steps make. Listen again. Here. Wrong place. Here. Right place. Crazy. With reverb, it's all about mic placement. Finding that sweet spot. And this is just on a $400 handheld digital recorder. Not mounted on a mic stand, not with a shock mount, not with a pop screen. Just held my soggy, tattooed hands. And, look, I know I am no Art Garfunkel. But come on, I had to do it. Light a die. Light a die, 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 Light a die, da 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 Crazy. And they didn't have to do this to get reverb on these vocals. They didn't have to go to St. Paul's Chapel to get this. They could have done it in a studio and got something, you know, sort of similar. But they came here with a full field recording crew and all the mics and preamps and EQs and compressors and tape machines because they didn't want something similar. They wanted this. (laughs) 
And this is where I prove my point. This is why I think Bridge Over Troubled Water, despite all of its praise and accolades, is actually an underrated album. Because when people talk about the album, they of course talk about Paul's masterful songwriting. They talk about Art's unreal voice. We talk about the individual songs. Bridge Over Troubled Water, The Boxer, Cecilia, Only Living Boy in New York. But what we don't talk about enough is the production, the design of the audio, the engineering, the sound, the role Roy Halley played as their co-producer. We don't talk about those guys dragging a whole truckload of gear up to St. Paul's Chapel and a whole crew of engineers just to get the right vocal sound. But because of that, I think it doesn't get the respect it deserves as an album, as a piece of recording. I mean, this is some God-level stuff. This is artwork. This is architecture. Because this album is not just some great songs and great performances recorded in a nice studio and shipped out to the masses. These two guys are so good at what they do. Songwriting, performance, and arrangement. They could have done that. They could have done it the easy way. And it probably still would have been a hit. But for Simon and Garfunkel, the easy way was never the answer. Every sound on this record is thought through. Every moment is meticulously polished. Every idea explored. And as a result, every song adds up to create an album that shatters the definition of folk music. It takes that genre and pushes it light years beyond where anyone else was taking it at the time. And it paves the way for decades and decades of folk innovators to follow. This record should get heralded more as a breakthrough Sonic album. This is Larry Crane. Where did we begin with Larry Crane? Larry Crane is the founder and editor of Tape Up Magazine, which is one of the most respected audio engineering publications in the world. It's been around since 1996, still going strong. But on top of that, he's also a producer and engineer of great renown in his own right. He's produced some of the best music you've heard from Elliot Smith, the Decemberists, uh, Death Cab for Cutie, The Thermals, Stephen Malcolmus, Cat Power. The list goes on and on and on. Yeah, I think Roy Howley should be as respected as George Martin and Phil Spector and a lot of other people. But, you know, I mean, I think sometimes it's easier to dismiss projects like this because they had gigantic runaway success. I mean, if you go to a thrift store right now, there's probably five copies of this album sitting there. You know, and uh, it was a big seller. It sold millions and millions. It was everywhere. And so 
you know, the the writer at Rolling Stone's going to give it a maudlin review, or you know, it's not it's not hip enough, man. You know, <laughs> like it's kind of disappointing because if you if you just landed here on a spaceship and you heard these all these records, you wouldn't you wouldn't set this not next to Pet Sounds or the White Album, you know. And he's right. This album doesn't get put next to the White Album or Pet Sounds, Dark Side of the Moon, and it should. Because it isn't just brilliant songs and beautiful singing. It's a beautiful album. Front to back. But brilliant albums like this, they don't just happen on accident. Even when you have talent. This is important. Talent isn't actually rare. There are lots of people with talent. Granted, not everyone has Simon or Garfunkel talent. But when you need to build a team to make your record, there's actually no shortage of talented people to choose from. I mean, especially if you're people like Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel, I mean, you can pick up the phone and talent will come running to your door to work with you. But it's never about finding the most talented people. It's always about finding the right people. Finding the people that you work with best. The people who challenge you, push you, and will push back. The people that bring greatness out of you. Now Simon and Garfunkel, this is a duo, have a fascinating working relationship to begin with, which we'll cover in a later episode. But it's Roy Halley, the producer and the engineer on Bridge Over Troubled Water, that's really the unsung hero of this album. He's the man who takes Paul's brilliant songwriting and his artistic vision, art's incredible talent, and he implies his own wizardry, his innovation, his excitement for recording, and his love of their work to help create this album that transcends all of their other records that have come before it. And that thing they did at the church at Columbia University for the some of the backing vocals and stuff is just brilliant. Like, you know, I'm sure the, the crew, I think Roy Halley even says he had to send a remote recording crew uh, from Columbia, you know, down to... Columbia, from Columbia Records to Columbia University, uh, no connection, and record these vocals in this remote space just to capture the ambience. And, you know, back in the day, you know, two years before this, if an artist had said, we want this, even if they'd had record sales, some producer would say, no, you know, just, we'll just put some reverb on it, put some echo chamber on that, you know, quit being a prima donna. But these guys got to push these little envelopes here and there. I mean, they're, they're, they're paying attention to it along with Roy and making sure that everyone's putting their most into it. And I think that's really, really important. For those of you that don't know, who don't make records, that's what a producer is supposed to do. But as Larry stated there, back then, oftentimes they didn't. In a lot of instances, music was a factory. A perfect example of this is from the song Bridge Over Troubled Water. They sent demo recordings off to some very talented composer to create a string arrangement for the piece. And what they got back was not to their liking. It felt like the guy had just phoned it in. And they got hard evidence and confirmation of this when they looked at the sheet music the guy sent along with the recording. Where he wrote the title of the song, which should have been Bridge Over Troubled Water, he wrote A Pitcher of Water. I mean, they hired this guy to create a string arrangement for the song, and he haven't even listened to the lyrics. Which, 
understandably pissed off Simon and Garfunkel. And when they said, we don't want to work with this clown, like he doesn't care about our work, Roy Halley had their backs. Because Roy Halley was different. He cared about the work of Simon and Garfunkel. Like it was his own. Because in a way, it was. You see, when a young Simon and Garfunkel walked into Columbia Records for the first time to record their first demo, to audition for the record label, just by happenstance, Roy Halley was assigned to be the recording engineer for that first demo session. But once he heard them sing, way back then, he told his bosses at Columbia, I want to work with them on everything they do. And though it wasn't until their last two records that he actually took over as a producer, he was there the whole time, as an engineer, as a collaborator, and their friend. He became such an integral part of the work, they began calling him the third member of the group. And the results are undeniable. this doesn't just start and end with going to a beautiful chapel to catch some good reverb. There's so much more going on on this record. I mean, there's a lot of factors about this record that are really interesting. We're still with Larry Crane here from Tape Hop Magazine. One of them is it's very dynamic. Cecilia is the loudest goddamn song. And on this record still, it is the most loud song on the record, right? Because of the percussion and because of the sort of brashness of the, the vibe of it that and that weird little percussion loop that they made that they play over, it just jumps. And But then the great thing is like, okay, there's your bass line. That's as loud as the record is, especially back in the vinyl days. So the peak of of the title track and the boxer are that loud. And then So Long Frank, Frank Lloyd Wright is very soft. And the, the ending track is very soft, but they're, they're beautiful and they're arranged really well. It's like there's this super crazy dynamic to this record. And, you know, those those dynamics are part of it. And you've got to credit Roy Halley for, for keeping an eye on that as the engineer and, and overseeing and co-producing. And I think the band was obviously into it as well. And, and I think that's something that really sets it up really well to be an impactful record. If you took Bridge of Patrol Water, the song, and, and put it in a limiter and just made it the same volume all the way through, it would have no impact. Or the boxer as well. They wouldn't go anywhere. It'd be stupid. You know, so I think that those dynamics, I think those dynamics of this album are really important and, and, and create and help reinforce the emotional content massively. And those dynamics came from the way they worked as a trio. Simon brought this incredible vision, this supernatural songwriting to the table. And Garfunkel had this incredible gift of a voice and a talent for vocal harmonies. But it was truly made something special with Roy Halley working his magic and turning this record into the dynamic, creative thing that it is. They loved to experiment. You know, they were just recording in strange spaces and they were using different studios, different instruments no one was using, sounds no one was going for. There's this great documentary about the making the album called The Harmony Game. 
When you hear Garfunkel talk about the process, he keeps using this phrase, play. I mean, he calls it a game. And this is what it feels like it was all about. Experimentation. Play. I mean, work, to be sure. But there was an adventure into the way that they were recording. There was no bad ideas. And this is how you have them in the chapel, to get the reverb exactly right. When they track the drums for the boxer, they set up Hal Blaine. And by the way, Hal Blaine, the drummer for the Wrecking Crew. Um, if you don't know who the Wrecking Crew is, there are documentaries made about them. They are responsible for some of the greatest music in the history of American music. They had Hal Blaine, and the entire staff was from the Wrecking Crew. Real killers. But anyway, for that drum sound on the boxer, that huge, giant snare hit, they set up Hal Blaine at the top of the elevator shaft in the recording studio to catch the natural echoes and reverb for the elevator. That's why it hits so huge when it hits. <laughs> the best part is he's sitting here smashing the hell out of the snare drum trying to get takes right after take right and his eyes are closed and he's into it and just as he comes down on one gigantic hit of that snare drum the elevator doors open up and he scares the ever-loving hell out of some poor security guard who happened to just be getting off at that floor right at the same time i mean this is what they're doing they're having fun this is what recording sessions should be like they're trying everything Look at El Condor Paso, parentheses, if I could. It has them sampling a previously recorded song. They took a song by Los Incas that Paul Simon loved, and he wanted to add lyrics to it. But instead of re-recording everything, he thought their recording's perfect. And so he just added their own stuff on top of it, added his words, and then there's the song. They were sampling. Ten years before anyone knew what sampling was. Because there was no rules. It was all a game. It was all play. And that's what makes this record so exciting. You listen to it, and you can hear Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel at play. Yes, I would. If I could, I surely Perhaps the most iconic piece of production on this album is the percussion track for Cecilia. The second you hear it, you'll know. Those echoing stomps and claps and thigh slaps, they're like nothing else that existed before it. And like so much of this record, born from them just playing around. See, Simon, Garfunkel, and a bunch of friends were up late one night in Los Angeles. In fact... In the house on Blue Jay Way, a house that um, you may recognize from a little song written by a little band called The Beatles. So Simon and Garfunkel and a few of their friends are at the house on Blue Jay Way. And they're hanging out, messing around with the built-in reverb effects on this portable tape machine they had. Which led them to effectively creating this drum circle that lasted for hours. Messing with the reverb, recording, tracking, adding, playing around. They use their thighs and their hands and a piano bench for a bass drum. And out of the hours and hours of tape they recorded that night, 
they found this 90-second clip of audio, and they decided to make a loop out of it and build Cecilia off of that. Which, back then, making a loop meant actually physically making a loop. You had to cut the tape upon which the audio was recorded, reattach it into a circle, and then loop it by running it between two tape machines kept at the proper distance for however long the loop was. If they'd come to almost any other producer at the time with audio for some weird late-night jam session and said, this is the start of the song, they probably would have been shot down instantly. But they didn't bring it to any producer. They brought it to Roy Halley, and it became the influential song that it is today. Just how influential, you ask? Well, listen. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've fully lifted production uh, techniques from, from this record. Wholesale. <laughs> this is Nick Thornburn, the front man of two humongously influential indie rock bands in the last uh, 15 years. The Islands, and before that, Unicorns, and he does his own stuff as well as Nick Thornburn, Nick Diamonds. Fantastic musician, hugely influenced by Simon and Garfunkel's work. I mean, their songs, probably one of Island's most popular songs was, was the rhythm and the recording style of the, the, the production technique. Um, the instrumentation and the, the production is, is directly inspired from Cecilia. Okay, so let's listen to that. Here is the first song I ever heard from Island's and still one of the most popular songs, Hallways. So you hear that. Now, let's listen to Cecilia by Simon and Garfunkel. I mean, come on. That's pretty spot on, right? Here's a record that was made 50 years ago, and it's still teaching people today. How many people, you say? Well, let's talk to someone else. One thing that comes to mind uh, from the bed track of Cecilia. This is Yoni Wolf, lead singer and frontman of the band Y, um, founding member of the Anticon Music Collective. Also, very important figure in indie rock music. Because I heard a podcast or whatever it was, a radio show, because this was, this was 10 years ago, with Paul Simon. And he was talking about how they, how they uh, made that initial uh, track. I can't remember all the details of what he talked about. But, but yeah, I, I went like that very day uh, into my little makeshift studio where I was living. And I just tried to basically you know, didn't like listen to it and try to copy it, but just tried to like 
copy it from my memory. On the top shelf, three bells, 12 years old. Turn the middle bottle clockwise twice. Pull the pool cue rack in the back, comes loose. Now crawl on your knees and follow where it leads. That is for someone by Yoni's band Y. Also influenced by Cecilia. But wait, there's more. You're very beautiful, he whispered at the girl on the beach. It's amazing how the days slip away through the infernal week. She didn't speak, or even smile in reply. He repeated it again, but the waves swallowed all the words alive. Sandpipers chasing the torn paper edges of the waves. Another gust of wind paints her hair across her puzzled face. One of these days, he's gonna escape and change the world. Come back to his hometown with a trophy and a girl. How about that? You hear Cecilia in that percussion? Well... For those of you not familiar with that song, that's a song called Skeleton, everybody's favorite, uh, by a musician named Astronautilus. Who is me? Yep, even me. Even I have ripped off Cecilia at some point. Even I have ripped off Simon and Garfunkel at some point. Actually, I've probably ripped off Simon and Garfunkel many times. So many of your favorite musicians have ripped off or been inspired by or guided by or learned from Simon, Garfunkel, and Roy Halley. Without those three making this record, there's no arcade fire. There's no Bonnie Vare pushing and bending the ideas of what folk music can be. There's no Mumford and Sons playing in your dentist office today. This all comes from the work these guys did. From the way they played. From the game they made. Out of recording. This is what makes great artists. This is what makes great art. People who push themselves, who push boundaries, who shake things up and manage to influence artist after artist after artist 50 years after the album has come out. This is incredible. And this is where we had to begin when we talked about Bridge Over Troubled Water. But the influence doesn't stop there. There's still a lot more to come. So stick with us. Next week, we're going to explore a television special that was made by Simon and Garfunkel to accompany this record called Songs of America. The influence it had and the impact that it had and how it was years and years and years ahead of its time. But that will all come next week. So stay tuned. Be sure to subscribe. Be sure to tell your friends because we've got a lot of great things coming up. I want to thank my guests, Larry Crane of Tape Op Magazine, Nick Thornburn of Islands, Unicorns, and all of his own solo work, and Yoni Wolf of the band Y. Thanks for letting me use your songs too, guys. That was great. Consequence of Sound is running a contest over at their website where you can win the entirety of the Simon and Garfunkel catalog on vinyl. So just head on over to consequencesound.net and uh, enter to win. It's a pretty beautiful little package they got going. Do yourselves a favor. 
put on some headphones, some good headphones, and listen to Bridge Over Troubled Water from front to back. It's a short record. It's so concise. It's so tight. Pay attention to the production. Listen to the reverb. Listen to the way the drums sound. Listen to how the vocals sound. It's really a thing of beauty. Well, that's all for this week. For Consequence of Sound, Sony Legacy Recordings, I'm your host, Andy Bothwell, and this is The Opus. Consequence Podcast Network. Borahey Army and fellow music fans, I'm Kayla. And I'm Bethany, and we're the hosts of Standing BTS from the Consequence Podcast Network. We're a bi-weekly show that covers the impact and legacy of K-pop group BTS. We mix the perfect blend of research and fangirl as we take a deep dive into lyrics during album reviews, theorize over music videos, and keep up with their current events. No BTS topic is off-limits. We welcome everyone into the conversation, whether you're a casual fan, committed ARMY, or someone who's just curious about one of the biggest music groups in the world. Come chat with us every other Thursday with a new episode wherever podcasts are found.